0: Do we expect him to react in our lives? How real is God to you and to me from day to day? How real is he when we face difficulties in our lives? Do we accept the fact that there is a God and basically believe him, and yet we have crises in our lives... Do we sometimes seek other solutions to our problems, whatever they might be, other than what God would say in his word is a godly solution? Do we sometimes seek worldly solutions? And if we do, why do we? If we truly believe that there is a living, breathing God. Yes, I did say breathing. He has a breath, mentioned quite a few times in the Bible. He doesn't breathe the same mixture of oxygen that you and I do, and he doesn't depend upon it for life, but he breathes. He has form and shape. He is not a spook. But to a lot of people, he is a phantom God. Mr. Armstrong wrote a book, or a booklet, well, it was actually an article, many, many, many years ago, I don't even remember when, entitled Why God Is Not Real to Most People. And to most people, God is not real. Now I look out here in the audience and I see real people. You know, you can go up and you can poke them and they jump. But for us to envision God is a very, very difficult thing. And it may be one reason we have trouble believing. John Reitenbach gave a sermon. It was actually the first one he ever gave when he came out of Worldwide and began... Church of the Great God, entitled, Do We See God in Our Lives? I would recommend that you get hold of that tape and listen to it. Very well done. Do we see God in our lives? That was in January of 92, and some of you here have the tape, so you might can borrow it from someone else. We say we know God, but we often doubt him and do it our way, don't we? We believe, for instance, that God can heal. We say God is a healer until we get sick. And then sometimes we seek a different solution. Why do we do that? Perhaps in some cases, some solutions are not wrong. There are natural solutions to some things. Isaiah was instructed to put a plaster on a boil, big plaster I believe it was. So there are some things that God has created that certainly are of use. Sometimes man goes way beyond what God intended. Doesn't man do that in every subject you want to bring up? Far beyond what God intended and beyond and into the territory occupied by God. Now, I'm not going to give a dissertation today on where those lines might be. That's something we all have to determine. <clears throat> Some things may be okay to do, others may not. I recall Asa, though, who was diseased in his feet. doesn't say what the nature of the disease was, but it says he died because he sought the physicians and not the eternity. In other words, his death was a direct result of seeking the physicians very clear in the scripture. So whatever it was that Asa sought, God took exception to. And yet, we don't have a problem having a bone set by someone who is trained as a physician. So that isn't what I want to get into today. But I just use it as an example of how we say we believe God, and yet when our lives are at stake, Suddenly we say, well, let's see. What can I do here? What can I do? How can I save me? Is there something somehow not quite right in our thinking? Let's go to Philippians 1, verse 6 to begin with today. Well, actually, Philippians 1, I'll get to verse 6. Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy were writing to Philippi, particularly Paul, who actually did the penning, but he included Timothy since he was with him. And he says, Grace be to you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. When he thought of them, he thanked God for them. I wonder if we have reached Paul's state of spiritual recognizance as yet. So often when we think of people, sometimes we don't give thanks to God for them. I look at myself sometimes and I think, how could anybody be thankful to God for me? You know, and I I think we all would have that emotion at times. And yet on the other hand, I look at you people out here and I realize that each and every one of you and I have problems. We have difficulties. We have ungodly characteristics. And yet overall, I have to thank God for you. Don't I? Because there are over six billion people on this earth who pay no attention or heed to God, whatever. And probably only a few tens of thousands who even recognize who the true God is. Very, very few people do. And of those tens of thousands (coughs) who recognize who the true God is, very, very few of them (coughs) have believed enough to remain faithful to this day, February 8, 2003. Very, very few. How many? 20, 30, 40,000? I think that's probably a pretty high number those who truly believe and are following God's will and way today there are a lot of people sitting in congregations of God somewhere who are simply warming chairs and are not building a relationship with the father and his son so when I see people who are still flawed and yet are working at it and trying I can't help but be thankful for you because you're some among that number of a very, very few. And I suppose Paul felt somewhat that way when he traveled around the Mediterranean and the whole world was going contrary to God and only a very, very few. And most of his own people, the Hebrews, the Benjamites, and so on, very, very few of them had accepted Jesus Christ in the flesh, Who came and taught them. And they could poke a finger at him and he was there. And yet very, very few even believed him. So I, when you put yourself in Paul's shoes in that sense, you would almost have to be thankful for one another. Perhaps that should have some reflection upon how we treat one another. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day till now. It all goes back to the fact that they began to fellowship together in the truth of God. And that made them something special. Not because they were special as human beings. Because none of us are really that special, are we? Not by any means. It is only The impregnation of God's spirit within us that sets us aside and makes us special in any form or fashion. So it's not really us so much that is special. It's God's spirit that is special. And it combined with our mind and the spirit in man then makes us special. And we are set aside for our holy purposes. Being confident, I wanted to get to this point, being confident of this very thing. He says, listen to this very thing. This is an important point. That he which has begun a good work in you will perform or will finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. You may even get old and die in the faith. But that doesn't stop the process. Because it will be finished when the day Jesus Christ returns to this earth in a resurrection. And here's where we have one of our biggest problems. We have trouble envisioning and believing that there is a life after this one that we can be a part of. Therefore, we make very often carnal, human, very physical decisions in our lives Because we have trouble truly believing that a God who put us here can resurrect us and give us life eternal. There's where the catch comes. We get so enamored with this life that we have difficulties. In other words, do we believe? Do we really believe? Do we grasp it? Without vision, the people perish. A lot of people have lost vision today and they are perishing spiritually. We cannot let that happen to us. Why did Israel not enter in to the Promised Land? Now, if you go back, view their history, it's a litany of unbelief, of Disobedience. Disobedience. Over and over and over again. God gave them His laws, His statutes, His rules, how to live. And they continually disobeyed those. Now, why did they not obey God's directions? Because of unbelief. Somehow, they could not make the connection that those rules and those laws and that way of living would bring them life and that it would bring them blessing. That God would give them a promised land if they would simply follow the contingencies of the covenant that they entered in with him. Now if they entered not in because of unbelief, here we find ourselves poised To enter the kingdom of God and not just have physical houses and physical goats and sheep and cows and vines and fig trees. But eternal life with utter, total security, happiness and joy forevermore. That's what we're poised to have. And yet many are not entering in today for the same reason that Israel did not then for unbelief. Why do I have trouble keeping God's laws? Primarily because I don't believe strongly enough. That's why. If you get into the faith chapter, you'll find that too. The belief and faith are essentially the same thing. Just simply don't believe him enough to believe that we're going to be there. But we have a promise here by the God of creation spoken through Paul he which began a good work in us will perform it now if God impregnates you with his spirit he intends for you to be born into his kingdom he wouldn't have called you sanctified you that is set you apart for holy use unless he fully intended that you get there so often we don't believe him enough therefore we do not that does not translate into obedience to his way of life and walking as Christ walked and when we don't walk as he walked we walk as men walk we get ourselves into trouble don't we we have not fully accepted in our hearts and minds that he really is going to resurrect us to life. Else it would change our conduct faster. Of course I realize that human nature is contrary to God and that Satan is there also and he's just as alive, just as real as God is. Created by God and he fell from glory. He's just as real, just as alive. And he puts all kinds of stumbling blocks in front of us to prevent our belief. The kind of belief that leads to walking as Christ and the Father walk. Let's go to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. The disciples were having trouble casting out a demon here. They came to Christ. He says, why couldn't we cast him out in verse 19? The answer is in verse 20, Matthew 17, verse 20. And Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. You saw the person with the demon. You realized the demon needed cast out, that the person would be better off if the demon were cast out. But you didn't really believe that if you told the demon to leave, he would leave. Because of your unbelief. For truly I say to you, if you have faith, he's talking about belief and faith here in the very same context. As a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove. There's another place where he says, you doubted in your mind if I were to go out here today and find myself a mountain and say I would like to have that mountain over here and I said mountain pick yourself up I want you over here I have serious doubts it would happen I don't have a compelling reason to need it moved other than perhaps my own desire to have the mountain in my yard Not on my house and, you know, near it. I don't have a righteous, holy reason for needing that except perhaps my own desire or conviction or convenience. So I would have serious doubts it would happen and naturally it would not happen. But God said if if you really believed as much as just a grain of mustard seed, just a little bitty seed, if you had that much true belief, it would happen. And God is not veal enough to us, I think, that often when we ask Him for healing or some other form of blessing or benefit from God as a result of our prayers, they often are not answered because we just don't have enough real belief that it will. I address this because it's a problem for us, isn't it? We want answers from God and we're not getting them in the way that we would like. Now I understand that there are, and I've preached it for years now, that there are some very big overriding reasons God is scattering the church today. And it's because we believed in what? So, isn't that what Laodiceanism is all about? I I'm spiritually okay I am fully clothed spiritually I am righteous and have on the garments of righteousness and not realizing that we're naked and blind and poor in spirit and not, not poor in spirit in Matthew 5 terms we just don't have much of it is what I'm trying to say in other words we don't believe God enough to do it his way we want to do it our way and boy did we do it our way Look what has happened to us. So there's, But he did say that that particular kind of demon only comes out with prayer and fasting. Well, what does prayer and fasting do? It helps you believe, doesn't it? it helps under, undergird and strengthen your belief. Why is God not real to most people? As Armstrong made the point in the article, a lot of it was because we do not have a daily relationship with him. We're not talking to him in prayer and listening to him and reading the Bible together. What strengthens my belief? Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God having trouble believing we need to read the book that the creator wrote we don't read the bible because if we read it thirty minutes a day we are complying with the rules and become righteous in the eyes of the preacher you know with the old deal you had to pray a half hour a day and you had to read the bible a half hour a day and we thought if we did that by rote then that was righteous but we missed the point And that is the relationship with God. We didn't talk to him as a real being and let him talk to us. These aren't just black and white words on a page. These are the God-breathed words of the creator. And they have life. There's life in these words. You read any other book and it's lifeless. They try by turns of phrases and turns of words to put life into it. But this has real life in it. It has the life of God in here. That's why we read it. Not just to put stars up on the board because we got our Bible study in today. Mark 9 now. Mark 9 and verse 24. Here's a child that was constantly throwing himself in the fire, obviously demon-possessed, trying to kill himself, or the demon was trying to kill the child, really. Verse 24, The Father came to Christ and cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help you my unbelief. I think that is a place that you and I find ourselves in quite frequently. I believe there's a God. I know I was created. I know this earth did not just sort of happen. You know, there was some kind of an explosion of something. (laughs) A big bang. I believe there's a God. But it is the quality and the intensity of my belief that comes into question. And whether that belief then is transferred into walking as he walked. Or whether it's just sort of a comforting feeling that there's a God up there somewhere. But he's not as real as he ought to be. I believe. Help my unbelief. I pray that sometimes when I get on my knees. I believe you. I know that you exist. Why can't I firmly grasp that you were God? And have my actions indicate that. Let's go to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Sometimes it might seem that we are dealt a very difficult hand in life. Our troubles and our woes can weigh us down. We think we're really having a tough time. (laughs) Sit down and listen to somebody's laundry list of woes and troubles that they're having. And you know, to you and to me, they do seem heavy, don't they? They really do. But can you believe some of the things that God has asked people to do? And to accept. To willingly suffer. Now, these people had to have something beyond what comes naturally to you and me. Faith or belief is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What did they say at the beginning? The people out here and you can go poke them with your finger. And there's resistance. You feel there's somebody there. There's something there. But he asks us to believe in something we simply cannot see. He tells us in Romans 1, go look at the universe. Go look at the world around you. And by it there is evidence that there had to be a creator. So we have to believe by extrapolation that there is a God. We look at what is here, what has been created, and he says, then you know there's a creator. But I'm not going to show myself to you. Christ said at one point, I'll show you my backside. (laughs) That's all you're going to get to see. Withouting doubting Thomas he says well alright you, you just don't believe it ok here are the scars but he doesn't do that very often for the most part he expects us to believe without seeing at least not seeing him and of the few people who have seen him in any kind of glory whatsoever scared them half to death You might think you want to see God, but you might better think about that a little bit. Because he's different than you are. He's a lot holier. He's a lot better. He's a lot more righteous. I mean, we can't even compare, obviously. But the contrast between our level and his level, when it comes down to actually seeing him, is beyond what human beings can normally stand. Verse 6, But without faith or belief it is impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. There are two elements to this that are very important. You've got to believe that he's there. That's one facet of this kind of belief. And I think that we all here accept that he is there actually that he is here what we have problems with is believing that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him to really believe that someday all of the diligent effort we put into trying to walk as he walked in spite of our carnal human nature and everything in this world against us that there is going to be a tremendous reward for walking the right way These people in this chapter had come to that point. They really believed that it was worth it to serve God. That's why a lot of people in the church today are giving up because they just can't see that it's worth it. It's too much trouble. It's too much hassle. It's too much difficulty. It's too hard. I have to deny my flesh. I have to do what I'm supposed to do not what I want to do it's just simply too hard for most people today now you have not given up because you're here listening I have not given up that's why I'm here talking about it. But every one of us has a severe problem in this area and it has become so severe with most of our brethren our friends, our relatives that we have known in the church of God over the last 50 years it's become such a problem but the majority have basically given up. Because they just don't think it's worth it. What have they done? They've lost belief that God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. That He really will fulfill His promises. So they look around and they say, well, I want to do this in the world. I want to do this in the world. I only have so many years to live. So I want to do this, 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 and this. And we... Set aside the promises of God and count them as a bowl of red pottage perhaps in order to enjoy something that is pleasurable for the moment. And we throw it away. So many are doing that. So I am thankful for you that you are still at least tuned in and willing to consider these things. Then he gives a bunch of examples. Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. It wasn't raining. The water in the river wasn't high. The lakes were down, perhaps. He was on a mountain, maybe. (laughs) But when God said, I'm going to drown folks, Noah believed it. And he believed it for a long, long time. It took him 120 years to build that ark. We can get burned out on the project pretty quickly, can't we? Anybody getting tired of putting bolts in a building on a cold, windy day? The sand in your teeth and your eyes? It can get difficult, can't it? Now, I'm highly motivated to get some things done, but there have been a couple of mornings I thought, oh, man... Get up and crawl around on that thing all day again today. If you're, if you're heavily motivated enough, though, you can do things, can't you? In spirit, I mean, I'm just using this as a simple physical analogy. But that man was motivated every day but Sabbath. He got out there and worked on that ark for a hundred and twenty years. And his fear of God and his fear that that promise would come to pass. Apparently, never waned. He just kept at it day after day. Six days I shall labor and do all my work on this blast, uh, this ark. <laughs> Take Sabbath off, get up Sunday morning, back to work on the ark. I can't fathom it. I can't fathom 120 years of building on one boat. But he was moved with fear and prepared an ark for the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith or belief. He really believed that the heavens would be broken up and the earth and the water would flood the earth. Only eight people lived. Only eight. Abraham, verse 8, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, not then, but after, Obeyed, and he went out not knowing where he went. God said go. And he didn't give him a map. He didn't say you take highway 9 and highway 16 and highway 436. He just said go. So I guess Abraham saddled his ass and took off. What it says. Not knowing where he went. Through faith, through belief, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country. Hadn't been given to him, hadn't been given to his people. Dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Not in homes built with foundations, but tents. Moving about, trying to find where God wanted him to be. He finally got there, but his real inheritance is still to come, isn't it? The first resurrection. For he looked for a city which had foundations whose builder and maker is God. Now where do I find a building where has God's foundation? Where do I go find this? He's a physical human being without without a whole lot of understanding of things that we know today. Those people back then desired to understand, the New Testament tells us, the things that we understand. They desired to look into them, but they didn't have any way of knowing. So here's a man wandering around in tents, dragging his family with him all the time, trying to find something that God had built. A lot of people in God's church today need to be doing that, looking around to find something God is building. But a lot have just simply given up and said, It isn't there. And yet, I can go back to the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and minor prophets. Most of us here have already seen the story in there that God is going to build something. Very likely He's already starting. May not be too visible to most of us. But it's very likely He's already starting. Where is it? What is it? How is it? Well, maybe we'd better look in the Bible because it gives us a pattern of what will be being done. And we've gone through a lot of those scriptures and past sermons and series of sermons on the minor prophets and others to find what to look for. We better find it. Just like Abraham looked. Verse 11, Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age... Her cycle was all done. She was all dried up. She was menopausal. Past all that. There wasn't anything left in that department. Because she judged him faithful, who had promised. Now she laughed at first. And I suppose some of you are 70, 80 years old. Some of you gals would think it rather funny if somebody told, came up and said, "You're going to have a baby." Yeah, <laughs> right. And Abraham himself was at the age where he said, yeah, right, there is a place in there where he chuckled too, you know. But they believed him. Once they got past their laughter, they believed God. And they began trying to accomplish what he told them would happen. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead. See, that, that's what Paul says here. He was as good as dead when it came to having more kids. So many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Now what kind of belief is that? Did they see God in their lives? Did they understand that God is real? Well, God, you don't understand. We've got a tubal ligation and a vasectomy you're dealing with here. What if God told... Both of you are fixed, okay? God comes to tell you, you're going to have a baby. Right. That's essentially what He was saying. Probably even more drastic than that, really. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. No permanent residents, just strangers and pilgrims. And God is not ashamed to be called their God, verse 16. He's not a bit ashamed of these people. He holds them up in his word and says, You know, these people really believed me when I told them. If they would do such and such, I would do such and such. God has given you and I a lot of promises. Given you and me, to use proper grammar. A lot of promises. What level of belief do we have in those? And what are we willing to do in order to receive those promises? What did Paul go through in order to receive those promises? He's probably the one who wrote these very words here. Stonings? Shipwrecks? You know, if I were in a shipwreck tomorrow, I doubt i will be on a ship, but let's say I were. There would be people who would say he must not be serving God. God wouldn't have let him be in a shipwreck. Someone's in a car accident tomorrow. Well, he must not have been obeying God. He had a car wreck. Well, he mustn't you know, that person doesn't have a good job. They must not be serving God. God must be punishing them. He got striped from the Jews, he got stoned to death or left for dead, shipwrecked over and over, bit by a snake. There are people today, if some some one of you went out climbing up in the rocks trying to get some exercise around here and got bit by a rattler, somebody would say, well, they must not be obeying God. It's inevitable. Paul went through all that stuff over and over and over again. What about these people here? Let's page on down a little bit. Verse 33 mentions a bunch of the people. He says, Who through faith, subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions like Daniel, quenched the violence of fire like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, perhaps boiled in oil like it said happened to the Apostle John. You ever put your finger on the stove in your life? How about being boiled in oil? Escape the edge of the sword and people running around chasing the spears and swords like David out of weakness we're made strong ah it's through our weaknesses that we're made strong you and I probably are going to get very strong aren't we <laughs> considering our weaknesses God does use the weak and the base my wife made a comment the other day that God ever uses people like we are in any fashion or form that is important in any way, it will not only confound the wise and mighty, it will also confound the weak and base. (laughs) Think about that one a little bit. It will impress everybody if God uses people like us, no matter what state they are. Wax valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women receive their dead, raised to life again. That requires a certain amount of belief, doesn't it? But if one of your children died, girls, how strong is our belief? There have been resurrections in the past. If I read my Bible correctly, there are probably going to be a few more the end of this age. And I don't mean in the resurrection, I mean probably physical resurrections. That's what the scriptures seem to indicate. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. We've read of all kinds of different tortures in World War II by different peoples around the world. And men, mankind is always tortured as enemies. It doesn't make any difference what culture uh, you examine. You will find that people have always tortured their enemies happened right here in America Indians torturing the white man coming to take their land and I've worked the other way too for the times of men white men tortured the Indians we don't read about that too much do we because we're the ones that wrote the books you realize that some of those white trappers killed the Indian women and made coin purses out of their breasts That's what the white people did to the Indians. You want a lurid example or two? Quite proud of their coin purses. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in half. Story is that Isaiah was sawed in half, not necessarily crossways, but end to end. I don't think there was a more a kinder person, a more visionary person, uh, a gentler person. Whoever wrote in the Bible, well, maybe John, the apostle John, was close, but when I read Isaiah, it's just so inspiring, and encouraging strengthening because of all the superlative metaphors that he uses throughout the book of Isaiah. I just love to read Isaiah. And yet as kind and gentle and as encouraging as Isaiah was, probably saw it in half in the end, or to, to aft. Alive. We're tempted. We're cut in pieces with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Destitute means dirt poor. And afflicted with diseases, problems. Paul himself had evidently an eye problem, head problem. He wasn't healed after three times he had asked God Directly. And tormented. No peace, no security, but being tormented. Of whom the world was not worthy. I think you'd have to say that. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. No homes. Wherever they could find shelter. Under a rock, in a cave, under a tree, whatever was around. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, Receive not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. I'll wait for the tape to turn over. God could have made the plan different. He could have made it so that when you qualified, you went to heaven. Like the Protestants would like to believe. And do believe. concrete contrary to scripture, but they believe it. You die, you go to heaven. But they sure don't want to die today. But the reason God set this thing up is so that the first could be last and the last could be first. It would all be resurrected at the same time. He could have made it so that when you reached a certain point of spiritual growth, you didn't even have to die, you just were changed like that. He could have done it, couldn't he? Not the way he wanted to do it. He let all these people go through all they went through with the very purpose of them not getting their ahead of you and me. Those of us upon whom the ends of the earth have come. That's what he says here. They did not receive the promises yet God, that God having provided in his plan a better thing for us, for you and for me, that they without us should not be made perfect an incredible chapter of Hebrews 11 you go through the whole Bible and see that everything that all of God's people went through they did not receive the promises because God was waiting for us should this undergird our belief and our faith you know Abraham is having to wait and David is waiting and Moses is waiting because of what? with me that's why they're waiting in the grave right now it's for us to get ready we're nothing are we and can you put your name beside Abraham's and Moses and Rahab I can't put mine there we've got to be placed there someday they're part of the 144,000 we're part of it we have got to come to the same kind of belief that they have. Where we would be willing to walk out in the desert and live in a cave underneath a rock somewhere and be hungry and tormented and destitute and people looking for us to saw us in half, the stone of the stones until we die. You can't do that unless you really believe in something unless you have that, envision, that vision imprinted in your mind to the point that it comes above everything else. You've got to believe Philippians 1.6. Come to the point that you believe in your heart wholeheartedly that He which has begun a good work in you will not stop until it's finished. And therefore you are highly motivated to do as he says and to walk as he walked. There are whole religions built on fear. I'm going to scare the hell out of you and scare heaven into you. That isn't what does it. You and I do not have fear of an ever-burning hell, do we? No. We understand better than that. So, if you cannot be motivated by fear of being poked in the rear with a pitchfork all your life, forever, you have to be motivated by something else. Now, there's a certain fear that is needed lest you lose out. We need to fear to lose out. We need to fear him who can grant life or death. Say, you're a goat or you're a sheep. He's the one who defines that. It's defined by our lives. But the real motivation that causes you to do the things that these people in Hebrews 11 did come from a belief system where you believe that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You must believe that. And that will make you willing to be stoned. And that is evidenced by the way that we live our lives day to day. By how we treat each other. By how we react with each other. Because he says your relationship with me is dependent upon your relationship with your brethren. How we treat one another. Do we really believe we're going to be in the kingdom of God? You know what? Those Palestinians who strap explosives around their waists and go out and find themselves a likely-looking bus and get on it and blow up Israelis and Palestinians, whoever's on the bus. They really believe with their whole hearts that they're going to heaven when those bombs blow up and those nails penetrate their bodies forward to aft and back to front. They believe that they'll be rewarded for that. And that those hated Jews, those imbeciles, those infidels who do not believe in Allah will receive a much worse fate. Now it's a crazy belief. But they believe it. And if you believe something strong enough, you're willing to die for it. They're willing to die for what they believe, stupid as it is. Are we willing to die for what we believe, as wonderful as it is? No, I don't have Kool-Aid under here. This will not be self-inflicted. But God tells us if we walk his way, we're going to suffer the same things these people suffered. Might as well know it's coming. How much do we really believe? And then we ask God to do something for us or to fulfill a need in our lives. We have trouble believing it. If it doesn't happen within 30 minutes, we go seek a different solution. Makes me wonder sometimes how deep our belief really is. Your belief and mine simply has to transcend this physical life, brethren. It has to go beyond it. We have to grasp that there is another life out there that God is willing to give us if we will do as he says, and that anything we want or desire on this life is nothing compared to that. Therefore, we're willing to give up this life. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who seeks to lose it will save it. We lose it in him... We'll live forever. If we cling to it here because we don't believe enough, he says we'll lose eternal life. And we have to be able to accept whatever hand has been dealt to us here. That's what David and Daniel and all those people did. They accepted whatever had been dealt. And they didn't seek another solution. Now we have negotiators among us here who, well, if they said, bow down before this idol, or we're going to throw you in there with those hungry lions that we haven't fed in five days? Then the negotiations begin. The justifications begin. The reasoning begins. Well, what if I just bowed down but I didn't pray? You know, what if I just sort of bowed my head and looked up? You know, there's a lot of ways you could convince yourself that it would be better. Would God really want me to be eaten by those lions? When you hear this noise of the sack butt and all these other instruments, you fall on your knees and we're going to throw you in that fire and we're going to heat her up seven times hotter. Oh, man. Why do you give me choices like this? <laughs> Why did you deal me such a hand? I can't play this hand. Yes, we can. If we believe deeply enough. Let me cover just a little bit more. Because I want this to be encouraging and positive. 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4. Verse 15. 1 Corinthians 4.15 For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. We have been begotten through the knowledge of the good news of the kingdom of God. God gave us the knowledge of why man is on this earth. And we have been begotten of His Spirit impregnated with the Spirit of God joining with our minds to form a seed that will grow to eternal life. Now when God begins a pregnancy He intends to see it through. He wants no abortions. And there are a lot of people who have come to ignore the fact that they have been begotten of God And now they're going off, forgetting about religion entirely, or going after worldly religions and various superstitions. And they're not growing toward birth. They've quit using spiritual food to grow by, they've quit reading their Bibles. They don't have their mind in tune with God. And as a result, they're drifting further and further away and toward abortion. Because if the fetus does not grow, it is never born. If it lies dormant, it never gets above being that big around, it's never born. It's eventually passed away after it's dead, aborted, miscarried. We are just like children who have been impregnated in a mother's womb. There's no going back. There's no turning around. There's no forgetting it. There have been a lot of girls wish they could forget it, <laughs> but it just keeps on growing, doesn't it? One day it pops out. You can't forget it once it's there. We have been impregnated. We have been begotten through the truths that we know. 1 John 5, First John 5, and here I want verse 1 to 5, 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes, and I hope we have a little different idea of belief now, it's not just head knowledge, but it's been internalized in our emotions and our feelings. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is begotten of God. And everyone that loves him, that begat, loves him also, that is begotten of him. We have to understand the truth to be begotten. A lot of people think that they're already done born again. They don't understand at all. Man, if I am born again, I wish it was all over. I would not want to live forever like I am. I wouldn't want to live with you forever like you are either. <laughs> and this goes both ways. You wouldn't want to live with me forever like I am. Well, I'm not born again. I'm only begotten, and I'm hopefully growing in the grace and knowledge and the stature of Jesus Christ, so that someday I can be born. But you've got to believe according to Scripture. It doesn't do any good to believe a bunch of Protestant gobbledygook or Hindu gobbledygook. The belief has to be true belief, the true gospel of God. Then you can be begotten. Everyone that loves him that begat loves him also that is begotten. Christ was begotten. But you have to use God's definition of love. See, they have this feeling about God, but they don't keep his commandments. And it says this is the love of God, that you keep His commandments, that you live according to His ways and purposes. So that's real love compared to a false sentiment or emotion. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. So he tells you here, you can't have the love of God and be begotten unless you are keeping His commandments. That means that all those Protestants aren't even begotten yet, much less born. Because they don't keep His commandments. They don't even give them lip service. They say they're done away. For this is the love of God. Oh, it says it right here, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. They think they're negative. They think they're bad. No, if we keep His commandments, we're going to be a lot happier. For whatsoever is begotten of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith, our belief. Because we believe it, we do it. And when we do it, we know we're going to be rewarded. Our reward is sure. Paul came to that kind of confidence in his life. That he said, I know that my reward is sure. We should be working To come to that point. And yet he realized that even he could become a castaway after having obeyed if he started disobeying. It wasn't once saved, always saved, or if you just believe you're saved. Belief required obedience. And he knew that if he began to disobey, he could himself become a castaway. Did he believe in being once saved, always saved? No way. Who is he that overcomes the world, verse 5, but he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God and obeys and follows him? It's already been said before this, so we have to obey and follow him. Then we can overcome the world. Why? Because we believe we're going to have eternal life. That's what gives us the vision to do what is contrary to our nature. I hope we all realize by now that we simply do not want to obey God by nature. We have our own set of things we like to do that are contrary to him. But we have to deny the flesh. Isaiah 66. Now that we're talking about birth and begettle, let's go back to Isaiah 66. We'll wrap this up pretty quickly here now. I went a little over last week. Thus says the eternal, Isaiah 66, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build to me? And where is the place of my rest? What are you going to do for me, he says? Heaven is my throne, and I prop my feet on the earth. And you live under my feet. What are you going to do for me? That's why somebody asked me the other day, is this building, we're building the temple of God? They said that I said that. That's not what I said last week. I made a simple analogy that building a spiritual temple can be as difficult as building a physical temple. But I'm not about to call some little building we might put up out in the desert the temple of God. God's presence is required there for it to be a temple of God. To me, that's a meeting hall. Now, if perchance we obey God enough and believe Him enough that He decided to come put His presence there, then He would endorse it as the temple of God. But I think it's the height of presumptuousness for us to say that's the end-time temple. Follow me? Who am I? Who are you? that we could presume to build a house for God. Let's build a house and let's worship God in it and hope that his presence is there. And if we follow him diligently enough, his presence will be there. For all those things is my hand made, and all those things have been, says the Eternal. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. Not to those who say, I built a great edifice to God, and I myself dub it the temple of God. You know how they christen ships, they get a bottle of champagne and break it on the bow and call it whatever they call it. So what do people in religion do? They get themselves a bottle of grape juice, build themselves a fine building, break their grape juice on it and say, the temple of God. Well, maybe they don't do exactly that way, but it's the same thing. God doesn't look at something we might build that we say this is wonderful for God. He looks to us if we're of a contrite spirit and tremble at his word. That's what we need to be doing. We need a meeting hall so we can go and read his words and tremble. That's why we need a meeting hall. So he says, a lot of what you do doesn't do you any good. That's what he carries out in verse 3. He that kills an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrifices a lamb is as if he'd cut off a dog's neck. Now how holy is a dog to God? How holy is the average man walking around? Says, "You kill an ox or a sheep as a sacrifice to God. Might as well just kill a man. Does as much good spiritually speaking. In other words, he that offers an oblation as is as, is, as if he offered swine's blood. <laughs> kill a little lamb, shed its blood." He says, you might as well just be cutting a hog, letting it bleed all over the altar. He that burns incense, as if he blessed an idol. Yes, they have chosen their own ways. They don't believe me. They want to do it their way. And their soul delights in their abominations. Doesn't religion do it their way? You can read Jeremiah 10. It says, don't do this Christmas tree thing. But they decide, let's do Christmas. They do it their way. And they delight in their abomination, don't they? One little example. I also will choose their delusions, and I will bring their fears upon them. Do we fear that we might have people die by terrorist means in America today? I think we have a healthy fear of that now. Is more of it coming? I think you could guarantee that. Not only terrorism, but invasion and destruction of our whole society. God says it's going to happen. I will bring their fears upon them. Some of us Grew up under the fear of the bomb, didn't we? Isn't that what a lot of the rebellion in the 60s was all about? The world ain't going to be here anymore. Let's just enjoy life. That's really what the motivation was behind the scenes. Well, it's coming. Because when I called, none did answer. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I delighted not. And we in God's church chose a lot of things, a lot of ways of life, a lot of directions in our lives that God didn't choose. So he says, don't go around building buildings and saying this is the temple of God. Tremble at my word. Do what I say. Believe what I say. Walk as I walk. Verse 5, Hear the word of the Eternal, you that tremble at His word. Your your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified, but He shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. Were some of us kicked out of worldwide because we wanted to obey God? Our, Our own brethren cast us out, called us enemies for His name's sake. This is a prophecy that's coming to pass in our lives. It happened to the early New Testament church. They could have read this verse in Isaiah and applied it to themselves when they were being persecuted of the Jews, stoned with stones and put in prison and so on. It applied then, it applies now. And they said, let the Lord be glorified. So they had a, they kicked this out and had a praise dance. But he's going to appear to our joy if we carry through. And they will be ashamed. A voice of noise from the city. A voice from the temple. What's the temple today? We're the temple. What's the city today? We're Zion. Hebrews 12, 24, 25, 26. A voice of the eternal that renders recompense to his enemies. Now let's see something. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. At the end time, we are going to be delivered before we truly suffer a lot of the pain. The early New Testament church suffered the pain. The apostles were killed, hung, nailed to stakes, boiled in oil, whatever. Crucified. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. The list could go on and on and on, but I'm not going to take the time. We, God says, are going to bring forth and be delivered before we go through that kind of pain. Now, those who will not listen and tremble at his word and be of a contrite spirit are going into the tribulation, then they are going to suffer the kind of pain that we read about in Isaiah 11. I mean, in the Hebrews 11, excuse me. A lot of God's people are going to go through that, and he says 30% of them there toward the end of Zechariah will be saved through the fire. But they will then begin to wake up and serve God, but they'll have to lose their lives physically. But he says those that he is going to deliver who are faithful now and who believe now will be delivered before the pain even comes. Girls, wouldn't it be nice if you were all fat and pregnant and you could just pop that little rascal out before you got your first pain? Would you all vote for that? Any of you who have gone through it, I think, would. Who has heard such a thing? (laughs) Who's ever heard such a thing? Having a baby before you really go through the pain. Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? I can show you a scripture back here where it says our sins are going to be removed in one day. God is going to turn this thing around and begin to bless us in one day here at the end in ways that we have never understood before. Isn't that the way it happened to the early New Testament church in Acts 2? In one day! He said, wait here for 50 days. They waited. They were all gathered on Pentecost. and All of a sudden, tongues of fire came. People were being healed. People were being converted by the thousands. Things changed. One day. Bang! I believe Isaiah says that that will happen again. Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth? Did I impregnate you with my spirit? Did you become begotten to the gospel of God and the kingdom of God and I'm not going to see this thing through? Have I which began a good work in you going to quit before I finish the job? Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, says the eternal? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb? Lock your knees together and you're nine months pregnant and you're not going to have a baby? That would be torture, wouldn't it? Rejoice you with Jerusalem, that's us, the church, and be glad with her, all you that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you that mourn for her, that you may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations." There's consolation coming for all that we are going through and trying to obey him now against every fiber of our being. That you may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. There's nothing more comforting than a baby to be locked on to his mother sucking milk. God says that's the way we're going to be with the church. We're going to be that comforting and comforted, and that secure. For thus says the Eternal, verse twelve: Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. In this place will I bring peace, Haggai two nine, to his faithful remnant at the end. Then shall you suck; you shall be born upon her sides and be dandled upon her knees. That's one of the great delights of a baby is to be dandled on your knee, bounced up and down, and they'll laugh and giggle and smile and. They just love that kind of attention. As one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And when you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like an herb, instead of hurt like arthritis. And the hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants and his indignation toward his enemies. God is going to perform a work at this end time that you will not believe, he says. He will do new things on the earth that you have never dreamed of. And he will do these things that Isaiah talks about. In this age, before we go through the pain of the tribulation, he is going to separate his people out, his faithful, a faithful remnant, and put them together. And he is going to protect them and be a covert and a wall of fire around them. He's going to take care of us. He tells us in Micah 4. We've read this before, but I want to go back there in disconnection. God isn't doing this thing and going to stop in the middle of it or tie our knees together so that it cannot happen. Let's go back to uh, Micah 4. Verse 10. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shall you go forth out of the city, and you shall dwell in the field. And you shall go even to Babylon. You can't get completely out, but at least go out in the field. There shall you be delivered. There the Eternal shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. God is going to protect his people at this end time before he unleashes the horror on this world. Then he even tells us in the next chapter to go out and confront those that would come destroy you. He will protect his people. And ultimately he's going to take them to a place prepared for their safety and their well-being. And even though we're going through a certain amount of birth pangs here, he's saying, I mean, this isn't a contradiction in the scriptures, and it's not talking about a different time necessarily. Yes, the millennium will will also apply to physical Israel. But he's talking to the church first. And even though we're going through a certain amount of the pains of being born into his kingdom and travailing, the real pain that Isaiah and John and Peter felt, we have not felt. We have... Little problems with the cards we've been dealt. And sometimes our problems and our health difficulties seem overwhelming. And to us, in some ways, perhaps they are. But they're nothing compared to what we read about in Hebrews 11. We have not suffered the persecution as a church that is going to come on those who remain Laodiceans. I hope we're recovering from Laodiceanism and that we don't have to suffer that. But he says, once we comply with his wishes, there we will be delivered. Habakkuk. Just a few pages back to Habakkuk. Here I want uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Behold you among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. Now I'm telling you some things that you're having trouble believing. Because we don't believe. We don't get the vision. We don't understand what God is going to do for His faithful remnant here at the end. Most of the church doesn't get it at all. And they are not doing what is necessary to be included. And being here hearing these words does not necessarily mean you will be included. Because God will purge the rebels from among us. And being in a certain queue at the right time is not going to save you. It's being contrite and trembling at his word. And then he talks about the great work in his days he's going to do in this specific instance, and that is raise up the Chaldeans or the Assyrians, those who represent our enemies of the past and Israel's enemies, to come destroy this nation. He goes on and talks about that. But he gives wonderful promises to those who escape that. And notice in chapter 2, Habakkuk says, well, I'm going to sit up on my watch and see this thing happen. And the Lord answered me, verse 2, and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that reads it. Are you going to sit in a chair in church or are you going to run? for doing what God wants done. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. There is a specific time, God says, He's going to do the things that He promised Habakkuk and the rest of us. And Habakkuk rehearses the promise right at the end of chapter 3. But at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. It will seem like it's never going to get there, but don't worry, it is going to happen, He says. This is the God of creation who made you and me. Do we believe Him and do we believe Him enough to run or will we continue to go through the motions? Sort of believing there's a God, but a God who is not real to us. A God who doesn't hear when we pray. Or a God whom we don't diligently obey because we don't believe enough that these things are going to happen. Then he gives some instruction in verse 4. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, or proud, or vain, spiritually proud, is not upright in him. He thinks he's upright, but he's not. But the just shall live by faith, by belief. You believe it enough that you live it you walk it. That's what it's all about. The kind of belief that motivates you to do something because you know that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, obey Him, and serve Him. That's the kind of motivation when God becomes real to you. When His promises become real to you. They mean something. And therefore, you're willing to deny the flesh. You're willing to go just the opposite of the direction you desire to go. Because you know that the reward is going to be great. And that it's going to happen. And that just as surely as the flood came on this earth. And you can look around this area right here in Utah. And you can see the water marks all over this place. This has been underwater. It has been modified by water. The flood came. The lions did have their mouths stopped. And the fire did not singe one hair on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Paul shook the snake in the fire and didn't even swell up or feel bad. And they all thought he was going to live and fall over and die. And they said, he must be a god. These things are real. They happened. They're not fairy stories like Hansel and Gretel. They happen. These things are going to happen again to those who are contrite of spirit and tremble at his word. Brother